Are colleges and universities an untapped resource for opportunity zone development? Plus, what can we expect to learn from the forthcoming census tract level sales transaction data coming soon from the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Colleges and universities are an untapped resource for many Opportunity Zone projects all over the country. And here to tell us more about that today are two college professors located in New Orleans, Louisiana. Anu Varadharajan is a tax professor at Tulane University, and Dr. Michelle Thompson is a planning and urban studies professor at the University of New Orleans and data fellow at the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. Anu and Michelle, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Good morning, Jimmy. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to have both of you here with me today. So let's talk about New Orleans for a moment to start us off. How many opportunity zones are there in New Orleans, first of all, and what can you tell us about them? So there are 25 designated um, qualified opportunity zones in Orleans Parish, and there are seven in the neighboring parish of Jefferson. So together, I would say if you think about New Orleans, 32 opportunity zones. And they run the gamut of some that are contiguous to low income areas, and some that are located in, say, the central business district, even. And this is Michelle, so we understand the, the differences in our voices. Um, in, you know, in terms of the opportunity zones, there are 150 in Louisiana and approximately 8,700 across the United States. So the 25 that are in uh, New Orleans, it's a significant number compared to others um, around the country. And I think this discussion will, be, will highlight some of the things that we've learned early on about those opportunity zones, which in the case of uh, New Orleans, these opportunity zones are census tracts and they're, they're synonymous neighborhood areas. Good. And what are both of you hearing from the New Orleans community, uh, you know, in the last, within the last year, I suppose, since these zones have been designated? Um, so I'll jump in first. Initially, with the first set of regulations, um, since it was written primarily as a real estate oriented set of incentives. I think a lot of the initial discussion was targeted towards just redevelopment of certain areas. With the second tranche of regulations where they allowed investments in operating businesses, the discussions have definitely kicked up. But that also then highlighted how much more work needs to be done in terms of educating businesses that are located within the qualified opportunity zones um, and also businesses that are thinking of moving into or might, you know, have previously not thought of expanding into some of these areas. Now it becomes a viable, attractive business opportunity. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of educating the business owners as well to say, this is an untapped resource that you have not thought about in terms of capital investment. So that still needs to be done. And I would say that in terms of education, inclusive of, of the businesses is the community. That's where my focus and my work generally is, is there was a lot of information maybe at the, you know, for businesses and certainly at the municipality, but many community members and organizations were not aware that these designations were were 
being put in place. The community outreach was very limited. And so when I've talked to many of the development, nonprofit developers or small business owners, this information is completely new and they're not really sure where to start. So I think that from the top down from the city, there's been uh, a bit of silence and I think they're starting to roll up some information, but that's part of why we're here. I think that being educators, we can provide that information, not only in the campus, bringing it forward, but also to help the community un- to understand what this uh, these zones are and what they can do to influence the policy. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up awareness of the program. I think that's actually been a really big challenge here. Some communities were very much aware of the program before the zones were designated, and they were able to put together a task force and petition their governor's office on on their community's behalf. Other communities are kind of behind the curve. I still get emails, you know, probably one or two a week asking me, hey, how can I make my my neighborhood an opportunity zone? And I have to explain to them that that ship has sailed, that you're, they're about a year behind there. Um, what... What was New Orleans' involvement in designated designating opportunity zones? How much how much interaction do they have um, with the with the state government? If if you're aware of that, I'd I'd love to get any insight you may have of how involved the city was with the state when it came time to to designate these zones. Well, I can speak to that just having spoken with, uh, and you can certainly follow up with Bob Rivers, who is the executive director of the City Planning Commission, who I sat down with in spring of 2019 when I was trying to understand the history of how these were developed. And from what I was told, the City Planning Commission, certainly the mayor in that transition at the time, Mayor Cantrell um, came up with a list of actually more than 25 zones, which were uh, shared amongst the, I would say the planning community, maybe to some extent, uh, the city councilors. But uh, I don't believe that there was, you know, certainly I do, do I do know there weren't a lot of community or on meetings um, and the engagement was limited. But that list did go to the governor as the, the process um, was designed and the governor and their staff looked over the list and the list did change from what was recommended and then was sent to the U.S. Treasury. And in agreement, a lot, many people still believe that there's a, there are going to be more zones or incorporated zones, but as you just stated, the, the, the zones are existing and, um, and are going to remain those designated 25. That's right. Um, I want to back up for a second and get a little bit more of your background story on both of you. I knew you can you can start first. Tell me a little bit about uh, about your background, what what you're doing today, and how you got to that point in your career. Um, so I am a self professed tax geek. I love all things taxes. My entire career has been in tax. I used to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers for my initial phase of uh, my career, and then moved into academia uh, for this current phase of my career. And with respect to opportunity zones, when the TCJA came out. Um, in December 2017, I was just kind of reading through the various provisions, was a little bit intrigued about it. I saw some stuff come across on the Louisiana Economic Development uh, website where they had certain tax incentives. Um, And I actually had two students who heard about it in a finance class and came over to me and said, what do you know about Opportunity Zones? And we want to get involved or learn more. And um, so I started working with them and, you know, as young folks are these days, they were all enthusiastic and wanted to set up their own fund and so on and so forth. They moved on to other things because real life took over. <laughs> but uh, I stayed with it, um, got more and more involved in trying to understand how it was going to work and just 
started to speak at various events and met a lot more people. And that's how I met Michelle at one of the, um, where I was a panelist. And Michelle, after the talk, came up to me and said, hey, let's talk some more. And here we are, eight weeks later. <laughs> and Michelle, you have a you have a different background. You're not the tax geek that Anu is. No. Is that right? Tell me no, a little bit about yourself. Yes. So I, um, I really come from practice as well, which is interesting. I didn't really think about that. I knew it had the similar background history. Um, I was a certified real estate appraiser, but I also would teach classes because I liked uh, sharing that knowledge and also the information with community. So I started in Boston and I saw that there was a disparity in the the assessment, which ultimately led to, I felt, higher taxes for communities in Boston. Fast forward, I continued that work and research and ended up when I was at Cornell being on a team post Katrina to come down to help with a neighborhood plan. So it was right around 2007, 2008. The issues of collecting data, sharing it with the city, trying to come up with better plans for redevelopment is what I came to do and to help with and then was given the opportunity to start teaching at UNO. And at that point, came up with a plan. Yeah, it was a development model. It's called Public and Private Participation Geographic Information Systems. And the idea and the theory is that the university with their technology can help um, a community to be that technical arm and collect information that's needed and desired and use public information to come up with a plan or to evaluate a situation or a system. So that's what I teach. That's what I've been doing since post-Katrina, focused on blight. But it wasn't until the beginning of um, the semester of spring that at the same time I was working with the MasterCard Center when the term qualified opportunity zone came forward. So it was very new to me, but I knew that there was some data, local data and information and um, the need for community engagement. So I brought together my interest, uh, trying to teach students and to gather information to try to apply that theory and see how it would work with uh, understanding qualified opportunity zones a little bit better. Excellent. And so both of you are obviously in academia now. So yes. do you think there's a need for your academic peers to become more engaged with Opportunity Zone investing and Opportunity Zone development? And if so, how should they do so? How can they become more involved? Um, okay, I'll go first. Uh, absolutely. I think that's the answer. First of all, you're, there are, just put aside the whole, where is the academic institution located? Um, actually, there are, I think about a thousand academic institutions that are actually located within an opportunity zone. And um, there's a lot of talk about trying to work with them uh, because of their location within the zone. But I also feel that the academic institution is an integral part of the community. And to the extent that you're able to get faculty and students interested in working and being interwoven into the fabric of the community that they are, it's going to produce so much more in terms of a robust community working within opportunity zones and for the betterment of the entire community. Absolutely. And I, I think that this, you know, fundamentally uh, there's, there's a disconnect. I mean, New Orleans, you know, University of New Orleans is, is um, considered the city university, but there, there's still a big disconnect between what is provided by the university, what can be provided, because we're just talking about, you know, we are the planning department in, but there's so many, but 
qualified opportunity zones uh, affect so much more, you know, social issues, historic issues, obviously tax issues. So I think that as a university unit and not just the planning department that I sit in, we can provide information. Um, and I was so, you know, jokingly free resources. There's a lot of students. But what that really means is that the students will have the opportunity to learn more about their community, engage with the community and provide information to be able to go on the ground and look at the to the conditions. That is why I, I think in general, the city working collaboratively to collect information to be able to see what the what areas um, need to be fixed or what areas are doing well, collecting photographs. I mean, some basic fundamental information. Um, it's not possible for the city to manage that. But to go back to your question in terms of universities in general across the country. There is so much information and data, technology, resources um, that universities can bring, but fundamentally, I believe that they should be involved because they can be that voice, they can be that interpreter between what the city wants, between what the community wants, and also to try to understand this this big data. It's it's very overwhelming. It's huge. And how do we get our arms around it and bring it down and use it in an effective way at the community level? And, and I would add to that is, um, you know, when you put that many smart people together in a room, you're only going to come up with better solutions and better ways of doing things and looking at a problem from a, you know, a variety of different points of views. And the other question is, like, why not? Everybody is resource constrained. The state only has so much resources available. The city only has so much resources available. So if you're able to reach out to the university with its wide variety of various departments, like Michelle was saying, rope in your finance faculty to say, hey, help me put together a pitch book. Rope in your um, accounting and tax faculty to say, what are the tax incentives that we can, A lot, all states have tax incentives that can be layered on on top of the qualified opportunity zones. And I think, Jimmy, you had actually um, a podcast a while ago about combining historic tax credits with opportunity zones. So that's not that's one component, but all states have other unique tax incentives that they could layer on. So and then bringing in the econ department, the urban planning department, um, whether it's, you know, dealing with coastal issues, any every um, city has its own unique set of priorities. and reaching out to the academic institutions in and around them, um, it's, it's a great resource that is currently left untapped. Very good. Yeah, I, I did have uh, Rich Rogers on podcast episode number nine. He, we talked about twinning historic tax credits with Opportunity Zones. And yeah, there's, there's several other types of tax benefits that can work together with Opportunity Zones, both on the state and at the federal level. I want to talk a little bit about data collection and reporting. That's become a big issue in the Opportunity Zone space. In your view, what kind of data should be tracked? What kind of data should be collected? And and what evaluation methods do you think we should use to measure the effectiveness of the Opportunity Zones program? I come from a tax background. So one of the things that I've been thinking about, which has not been done to date in terms of determining whether the Opportunity Zone has been was it successful in doing what it was supposed to do, which is basically try to alleviate the income inequalities and you know help neighborhoods and um, areas within the country develop further? And uh, a way to look at that would be to look at the tax return 
data that is collected. The IRS collects all sorts of information from the 1040s that we file as individual taxpayers. So if you were to look at, for example, um, a particular census tract and say, what was the um, average taxable income for that census tract in 2017 before the QOZs were implemented? And if we were to track certain data points. So for example, what was the age of the taxpayer? Um, how, what was the income brackets that they were belong, uh, they fell into? What was the um, trajectory? How has that grown? Has um, what people, have people been migrating in or out? Because that is a very um, topic in terms of gentrification or development without displacement um, and so on and so forth. And also to try and understand the income sources of the population that lives in these census tracts, if we're able to figure out all of the parameters that we want to track today and say, okay, 2017, this was the baseline, and then 2026, um, or five years, right? But 2026 would be a good um, timeline since a lot of other things happened with respect to QOZs in 2026 and say, how has it actually um, shifted? Has it shifted the entire community in the right direction? That, I think, would be a stellar way to say, yes, it did what it was supposed to do. And on the flip side, we can also look at to say, okay, to the extent that the tax base has grown, has the government revenue, because we pay taxes on it, has it also grown? And that would give you a good insight into what was the net cost of these opportunity zones. So that's, that's big data from the IRS. That's, that's publicly available data? Um, there are, yes, the IRS collects a lot of data, but it's right now not at the census tract level. They leave it at a zip code level or a county level because some of these census tracts are so small that they will not be able to release it. Um, then you'll be able to identify your know, individual taxpayers. But I believe that from a government perspective, or if you're able to get certain institutions behind this, then you should be able to, from a tracking perspective, um, say, let's track all this data but control who has access to it. Well, that's that's a great idea. And and Michelle, you you have a, a slightly different perspective on on things. I believe what what sure. what, what do you think uh, we should do? What what type of data should we be tracking? And and what evaluation methods should we use to measure the program? Certainly. And I'm going to answer in, in two different ways and, as I say, two different hats. Uh, and I think what Anu is, is saying and what you've alluded to is there's there's a lot of um, public data. When we say public data, it could be the tax information. Certainly at the community, the city level, the neighborhood level, there's you know crime information. That that is definitely going to be looked at in terms of investment potential. Business starts, uh, changes over times so in terms of just education, health. Law, um, so I think that the kind of information that's being collected from the at the community level for the community is really this uh, uh, a, a kind of a profile of the neighborhood. Some of that information, depending upon whether you're an investor or a community who, or the city who wants to draw an investment, we're using all the same information. But getting access to the information obviously has been the biggest problem. And we're duplicating, replicating. There's been so many services that are being paid for, and, and in my mind, unnecessarily, to try to get at what does the zone look like. So what has been happening uh, well in New Orleans. What I was trying to do even in the spring was to come up with a template of information where community, where businesses can download for free and from the city level to the state level 
and how to aggregate that information using geographic information systems. But still, that's going to be too big for many, many folks. And um, for those who have the money, they're going to, you know, develop a market study and they're going to do the same thing only from a private perspective. So that's for the university and the community. They're still, I want to say, stuck with just that public information. But what I've been doing with MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, which is a, a really exciting, um, I hate to say opportunity, a really exciting new way of, of bringing in data, is that we're able to now get information at the census tract level. Um, and again, lower than the zip code, but not at the neighborhood level because of, of privacy issues, to look at sales transactions data that really would help make some decisions about what are the trends, what are the needs? Because one of the complaints or one of the concerns are if we if information about what the sales transactions are, maybe that's going to target neighborhoods or it's going to exclude neighborhoods um, with information. But the project that I've been working on um, is going to give information on, for example, the Liverpool Claiborne Corridor and show the level of business starts. And that's what's going to be available in short order is to look at the, the change in a public policy, which was in the Claiborne Corridor Cultural Innovation District. And before that overlay, that tax overlay was available and after. And what we're able to find with that anonymized and aggregated data is that there was a significant increase in sales um, in and near that particular zone. So I think what I'm suggesting is that we have the neighborhood data we can overlay it with the the Anu's uh, I'll say Anu's tax uh, tax information. We can also bring it up and out, not only to the city level, the state level, but nationally. So that's what also the Mastercard Center is going to be doing: is putting together a scorecard. There are many others who are trying to do this, and I know HUD is is doing this with some of their work. Is to try to say nationally, we've got you know, information on 8,700 communities. How can we bring this together to show, you know, nationwide what the changes were? Well, that's going to take a big machine and a lot of data. So I think there are going to be some tools out there, but hopefully you'll hear about uh, the scorecard that includes public and private data that will be available to the community um, through the center uh, pro bono for free. And that data from the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth is likely to be available, we, we think, uh, toward the end of July or, or early August. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the, the data and insights it basically is going to be a summary of not only the information that's available from MasterCard in, in terms of the anonymized and aggregated sales, but we're also going to start looking specifically at the qualified opportunity zones. Um, we've already taken a look already with in the spring of 2019 students uh, adopted a zone and were able to collect information um, on that particular zone. And then we're going to add that information from MasterCard in. So they have, I believe, a more complete picture on both public and private data. So uh, and when I say it's a community, but also investors. So hopefully they'll be able to look um, a little bit faster and quicker at what's going on in the zone instead of just looking at historical information. Oh yeah, that's that's great. And I'll be sure to link to that data from the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth in today's show notes page for this episode. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. So Michelle, yeah, you touched upon this next question already. 
you had some students in your introduction to neighborhood planning class at the University of New Orleans complete a study earlier this year, um, this spring semester, and they looked at New Orleans opportunity zones. Can you summarize the study and, and what its goals were and and if you have plans to conduct future studies? Yes. And so the the nexus of this study was uh, the idea behind the study was to provide a service learning opportunity to housing NOLA, who we've worked with um, and who's interested not just in housing issues, but in comprehensive life issues, what's happening in each neighborhood and how to evaluate it. So I initially the work was to try to identify what the zone was, to learn about the tax laws. And, and this was really outside of what we typically would provide an introductory class. And I, even though I was a certified real estate appraiser prior to my work at the university, and I understand some things about the market, this was a bit different. We wanted to bring in information and help students learn the language of the opportunity zones. I mean, <laughs> the idea of... Um, what is the capital gains? That is not what you're typically taught in a, in a planning class. So I think what's really wonderful about what was taught and what will be taught is that the students learned language. We're working on a, quote, live project. Again, are you typically in looking back and to seeing what happened versus being able to sit and, and monitor and support research that's going forward. So that that booklet, that guide was to identify the zones, summarize how information was gathered, and to go into different zones. We went into Algiers and New Orleans East and, and a couple of the other zones so they can provide a profile and go into the neighborhoods and take photographs and learn how to use the tools, but also provide step-by-step -step guides for anyone, specifically those citizen scientists who want to follow up the work. And that's where the kind of work, that kind of class and the service learning and guide can be provided to my colleagues who are part of the Association for Collegiate Schools of Planning and other planning organizations. But what's exciting that we're, um, Anu and I are starting to talk about is a way that Tulane and um, UNO can come together in the fall. I already have a land use planning class that I want to now take the template for what we did in the spring and have the now, I have now approximately 24 students that potentially we can really adopt each zone and work with the city. I've already started talking with the City Planning Commission, the Department of Transportation, and uh, NOLA Business Alliance and say, I'm going to have a number of students out there who can actually go and give you that uh, that on the ground um, pictures and analysis and do an assessment of the conditions. How can we work together? And I'll you know turn over to Anu in terms of what we think we can do together, and uh, um, you know in terms of those, those class opportunities that don't typically happen. Right. Um, one of the unique components um, of an education at Tulane is a service learning component that is a fabric of our education here at Tulane and the students have to participate in a service learning class. And one of the things that I've been toying about and had some initial discussions with academic leadership here is to come up with possible ways in which um, students at Tulane can use their service learning requirements to work with the city. And when I met Michelle, it was a natural, again, a meeting of the minds. And just to go back to what can happen when you, you know, put resources together and to say, okay, here you have two institutions, 
which are very different in um, their backgrounds and so on and so forth, but still coming together to work in the community for the betterment of the community. So I'm really hopeful that we will be able to come up with um, certain classes or different types of coursework that we can put together to work in this space. I think it's great what you two are doing, and I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck. And uh, But Michelle, you might want to be careful. You might end up turning some of your urban planning students into tax geeks like a new. <laughs> Well, well, if they're anything like a new, I will say I was I was completely, you know, and she knows this, but it was just amazing to me as a, uh, again, a foreign real estate appraiser. I really, uh, you know, my hat is really in into numbers, but but just to sit and watch her talk about collaboration and cooperation, and you know, this is about community at the same time was really quite astonishing. Thank you so much, Michelle. You're very kind. <laughs> a question to I'll pose to both of you now. What has changed in New Orleans since its opportunity zones were designated last year? Just anecdotally, are you seeing a rush of real estate development or new business starts yet? Or what, what are you seeing? Um, so I'll go first. I with a tranche of regulations that have come up uh, clearing the way for investment into operating businesses there's definitely a little bit more activity um, initially when it was people thought it was just going to be a real estate deal i think they were a little bit more cautious in um, where they were going to be investing how much money they were going to be putting so on and so forth so some deals we are aware again a lot of these um, deals are not public information so i'm sure there's activity that's going on and there are some that have come to the forefront to say, yes, uh, we do see that certain deals have been completed or in the process of being completed. Um, I, With the upcoming deadline at the end of this, since we're recording in June, um, the end of June would be the, the date by which all capital gains from 2018 need to be funded or put into qualified um, opportunity zone funds to shield them from current tax and get the deferral. So that's happening right now, which means that the next big push is going to happen over the next six months to get all of these funds deployed. So I'm sure there's going to be a flurry of activity in the deployment. And um, I feel that New Orleans as a city and the various constituents here need to really go after the money. Um, the squeaky wheel gets all the attention. So um a lot of people, when, when I say New Orleans, when I go to conferences and I say New Orleans um, and Opportunity Zones, uh, I, I can see the, the wheels turning because for the mass, vast majority of people, when I say New Orleans, they think Mardi Gras, they think Jazz Fest, um, they think parties, Bourbon Street. You know, it's a good time, let's say Le Bon Temps Roule. Uh, but we also have Opportunity Zones and thriving businesses here. So uh, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in terms of attracting the funds, not only from within New Orleans, but the other funds that are, you know, sitting all over the United States. I mean, that's a big thing about um the Opportunity Zone funds, which is a diversification that it inherently provides you. You could be sitting in um, Colorado and still be investing in San Francisco, New York, New Orleans, Boston, Arkansas, Arizona, New Mexico, you name it, that you could invest it and kind of diversify your portfolio. So um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, I think. Yeah, I, I'm going to follow up with some of the work that I, I know about you know, outside of New Orleans, and then I'll talk a little bit about inside. I know that in um, in February uh, there was a um, qualified opportunity zone summit, 
and that was being you know support was was being created by Accelerator for America, which was started by Mayor Garcetti, and the idea was to bring together you know um, businesses investors, cities across the country to try to help cities kind of market their, you know, market their um, particular neighborhoods. And New Orleans wasn't there. And I, when I came back, I thought, well, what's going on? You know, we're not ready. You know, was there any interest? Of course, there's a lot, like Anu said, in the background, people trying to figure, you know, what's going out. There was a change in administration. I think that that it looks like New Orleans is, is slowly moving forward, but I think that what I've heard from Josh Cox, who's one of the senior um, senior advisors to the mayor, is that they aren't going to just rush and develop, you know, a, a plan or a portfolio. They're being methodical. And one of those meetings that was to gain more information just happened, um, I think, May 13th, where the Norla Business Alliance invited a number of investors, local and national, to look at different areas in the city to talk about some of their concerns that were raised. I wasn't at that meeting, but subsequently spoke with um, the one of the coordinators of the meeting. And some of the issues that have come up are, you know, infrastructure and what kind of resources are available, what types of tax credits. Um, even, you know, some folks hadn't even realized we have Hollywood, you know, tax credits. So I think there's a lot of information that still needs to be put together. But in terms of, you know, uh, investment additional information. I'm going to go back to what I've been working on is that the more information that we can provide, and that's what I'm hoping we'll be able to share um, a full story with details and, you know, in within the next month on investment potential. And that certainly will, will come through information that shows that there is a lot of activity. How do we show that? Um, that's through that anonymized and aggregated MasterCard data in neighborhoods, in qualified opportunity zones where folks may not necessarily think that's the place to invest. So I think there's just more information that's needed and more to come. And, you know, Anu and I are here to help with that and hopefully others will too. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I do want to add, there is a lot of people working to disseminate information on um, opportunity zones. Sometimes I feel it's very fragmented because um, it seems like this week somebody's doing a seminar on opportunity zones. Next week, somebody else is doing a seminar on opportunity zones. Um, oftentimes you hear about it after the fact when I would say, hey, I would have really liked to have gone for that. So I think as a community, we also need to be very wary of um, sharing. I mean, stuff comes across my desk or my emails. I share it to five different people and I say, you may already know this, but if you don't hear something that's happening, if you're interested, you know, add it to your calendar and so on and so forth. So I think that um, continued effort to share um, and share alike would also help everybody. And this is not just um, to New Orleans specifically. I'm sure this yeah. is across the country. And I'll just want to do one more follow up, which just came to mind is absolutely at the federal level. You know, I knew you you mentioned and it's true that so there's information that has been provided by the federal government, but but there has been very, very limited information. And so there are some neighborhood organizations who are building affordable housing that I've spoken to recently and given them information on how to establish their own qualified opportunity zone fund. That's not my area of expertise, but just being able to share that information, it's not readily accessible. But there is 
more information coming, not necessarily out of HUD, but certainly out of the U.S. Census. There's an innovation group that's trying to get in from, you know, trying to share more information. But once again, you've got to be on a lot of listservs or folks like Anu or myself or, you know, cross-sharing information. Um, That's got to be done a lot better. But it's right now, it's not. And I certainly caution people who have to pay for any type of you know, QOZ info session when there's a lot of information they can just download for free. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing those insights there. Uh, putting aside the the fragmentation of of information and the difficulty in in obtaining it, what other frustrations or challenges would the two of you like to share regarding opportunity zones? Now's your chance to to get some of those frustrations off your chest for our listeners. Well, I'm going to go on this one. I am very frustrated with the idea that, you know, and and this is what I said to my students as we started looking at this is the lack of community engagement, the lack of, I would say, transparency from the, the start. There's nothing we can do about that now. But if this is truly um, if this, if the, the goal of QOZs is really to help impact, improve, level the playing field of, of people, businesses in these QOZs, then all of them should have fit the criteria. There are QOZs that absolutely are not based upon the low income, you know, um, the, 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 the definition of a low income area that really needs the kind of support that we hope the QOZs get. So I don't want to, as they say, step into the political realm, but I think that there's a, definitely a feeling and a frustration that this is the G word. The G word's coming, gentrification. So I'll pause there. And I think that's the, the biggest frustration. And I think I got it out. Thank you. <laughs> and Anu, how about you? Uh for me, it stems more, again, because I have my tax hat on. Um, there's a lot of unanswered questions. I had a conversation this morning with one of my friends um, who said, hey, talk to me about the qualified opportunities. And we're talking about it. And as I'm walking him through those scenarios, um, I've got lots of tax technical questions to say, okay, wait, does this rule apply first? Does the other rule apply first? Um, what is the applicable tax rate going to be in um, seven years, eight years? So some of it is for me, um, as a tax professional, the lack of guidance, but that's coming. We know that's coming. Um, my biggest fear um, or um, frustration would be how quickly can we get the community involved in um, the opportunity zones and taking for them to take a little bit of ownership for these small businesses to step up and basically say, hey, you know what, I, um, I'm, I'm thinking of expanding. Um, talk to me. Where do I go? And the other frustration that I sort of see a little bit coming up is the dollar values. Um, you know, a lot of people are talking about billions of dollars of investments. That's fantastic. I mean, that, that you're talking about really making huge differences. But sometimes you also need to step back and think about sort of a micro um, amount. You know, maybe it's $100,000, maybe it's a million dollars. And oftentimes some of these big funds um, will typically say, well, that's too small for us to deal with. But there is a huge need for those kinds of micro investments as well. So that that space needs to get a little bit more clarity and get more more players involved um, to say, hey, we're going to go in and, you know, think about some micro amounts and, and see how that works. I think that would be a great topic of discussion for a future episode of this podcast, possibly micro investing in 
in opportunity zones, what a hundred thousand dollars can do, what a million dollars can do, especially in some of the more rural areas of the country. I think yeah. that can go a long way. And I'll, and I'll tell you why a lot of the businesses that are operating in those um, smaller opportunity zones and really impoverished zones, the businesses are not, they can't even fathom what a million dollars can do for their businesses. They're really thinking working capital. I, I need a, you know, $100,000. A lot of them have, um, depending if they're minority-owned businesses, their mindset of, you know, equity versus debt. They've never been exposed to alternative types of funding. So there's a whole other world out there that's not just Series A, Series B, and, you know, billions of dollar deals that people are talking about. But, and the education and the way you approach those businesses and the way you would have to structure those deals and their time horizons, and even the language that you speak to those people, you've got to be able to sit across the kitchen table from some of these people and say, here's how this program can help you. And then I that also goes back to the community collaboration. If you can take finance students from um, you know, the universities, graduate students or even undergraduates who are interested in understanding impact investing, for example, or ESG or minority-owned businesses, and any, define it any way you want. But if you're able to say, you, I want you to go and approach these businesses and just have a conversation with them and say, this is how this Opportunity Zone incentive can help you and help you grow um, with this community, then you are changing the landscape one business owner at a time. And that's what I was going to jump in. I say, so, you know, it's, again, I keep uh, saying, I, I think I found my, my sister soul, you know, tax person here, because that's exactly the kind of work that needs to be across the aisle. It's not about planning versus tax. It's not about business versus not, but the kind of project, the kind of work that's being done and will be done in the city of New Orleans, especially along the Livable Claiborne Corridor or the Claiborne Innovation District. That's what they're trying to do right now. They're really talking about bringing in food trucks, vendors, folks who are you know, selling their uh, jewelry. It's not even the 100000 it's the $10,000. How do they access it? How do they show that they do have, uh, will have that track record, can be invested in? And how do they get their eyes on? So I think that's where the, in, in terms of that collaboration, being able to prop up those businesses, um, that's what in the fall, that's what we're going to be doing is looking at those areas, businesses in the QOZs, along with looking at other kind of the other sustainable issues about housing and transportation and putting that all together. And hopefully that information together will will have investors not just focus on their ROI or return on investment, but um, think about that social investment and the social capital that you can't put a dollar on. Yeah, well, I wish you the best of luck with that, with that study you're doing in the fall. And I hope I hope you're right. I hope it does open up uh, the mindset of the investors to to consider some some social returns as well. Uh, before we go, before we end our conversation today, can both of you tell us where we can go to learn more about you and what you're working on? You can find me at the Tulane University website. Um, I am at the A.B. Freeman School of Business at Tulane University, and I have a faculty page there. So, and I'm link on LinkedIn as well. So. That's where you find me. Great. And for myself, I'm in the Department of Planning and Urban Studies at the University of New Orleans, and I have a selected works page that has information on um, our Opportunity Zone website, 
information we are now going to be expanding and so the other project will be with MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth and you could put in my name and then Opportunity Zone. Excellent. Well, for our listeners out there, I'll have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And you'll find links there for the faculty webpages for Anu and Michelle, as well as the data from the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. And I'll also include a link to Michelle's study that she and her students conducted at the University at the University of New Orleans last spring. Anu and Michelle, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was a pleasure speaking with both of you. And to both of you, I'd like to wish you les le baton roulé and uh, have a have a wonderful rest of the day. <laughs> thank you so much, Jimmy. Really, really appreciate it. And to you as well. A tout à l'heure. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.